How do we explain misogyny in this supposedly enlightened era? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss misogyny and the role of women in our society, what our culture prescribes about our bodies to shield us from death anxiety. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Jamie Goldenberg a few years ago. Jamie Lynn Goldenberg, Ph.D., is professor of psychology at the University of South Florida. She has published articles in academic journals on the impact of the awareness of death on human motivation and on examining people's attitudes toward their physical, i.e. mortal, bodies, women's bodies in particular. She recently published a novel, Finding Jolie. She is also an artist. Here's the interview with Dr. Goldenberg. Dr. Goldenberg, welcome to Perspective again. Thank you. So, Jamie, we just mentioned that you work from the framework of terror management theory. Could you give us just the the basic concepts of of TMT? Okay, and terror management theory is based on Becker's observations. And Becker observed that as human beings, we're kind of in this unique existential position in that we want to survive, but yet we're smart enough to know that inevitably we won't. And he suggested that this situation could create paralyzing terror unless we had some means for managing this terror, hence the name terror management. And terror management theory provides an empirical framework for testing some of these ideas. So what we traditionally do is we prime people with thoughts of their mortality. We ask them to think about their own death or a control topic. And then we look at how it affects their behavior. And what we find is that when people are reminded of their mortality, that what they do is they show this increased need for a sense of meaning. So they cling to their cultural worldviews and they show an increased need for self-esteem. So they cling to different things that help them obtain a sense of self-esteem. And this terror management theory was developed by Sheldon Solomon, who was a guest on our show, mm-hmm. and his partners, Jeff Greenberg, Tom Pasinski. So how long has been has this research been going on, TMT? They originally developed the theory, I think, in 1986. And since then, we've a lot of people have been conducting experiments. So it started out with just them. But now there's been, I think, in nine different countries, people have been conducting terror management experiments. And you studied with Jeff Greenberg? No, I, um, I did a postdoc with Tom Pazinski. Oh, okay. So, but we all work, we all collaborate over email and I do work with all of them. So one of the themes that we've read in, in some of your work is the, the problem with human animality. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that, that problem that, that human beings have in, in terms of terror management theory? Yeah, well, animals are mortal. <laughs> and so that, that's the, the big problem, you know, that we defend against concerns associated with our mortality through our symbolic cultural worldview and self-esteem. And in a sense, this raises us above the level of a mere animal. So things that remind us of the fact that we are an animal nonetheless are threatening to us. And so we seem very much motivated to distance ourselves from all reminders of our connection to other animals. So how do human beings defend against the threat of mortality? Well, what, what Becker talked about and what terror management theory what we study in experiments is that the way that we do this is through culture. So culture provides the prescriptions 
and the standards and the rules that we follow. And by doing this, we can, again, separate ourselves from other animals and we become more of like cultural objects, cultural symbols. We see all over the media images of how the body, you know, the body is, is our physical body is something that reminds us of the fact that we're like animals. And so we see all sorts of prescriptions for how the body is supposed to look, how it's supposed to behave, how it's supposed to perform. And so by doing this, you know, by having this body that looks a certain way, well, then the body is no longer something that's animal-like. It becomes more of an object, a cultural object, an object of beauty. There's a lingerie ad campaign now where the models are depicted as angels, Mm -hmm. these giant wings on their backs walking up and down runways in their underwear, which I find absolutely, I, I just, it's unfathomable to me what that's about, but is that on some level what we're talking Sounds about like here? exactly like, what she's talking about. Uh, yeah, a rejection of the animality right. of, the, of the model. Right. They're angels, mm-hmm. right, who don't die. Angels, you know. Yeah, that's, a, actually, that, that's, a, that's a very good. nice example. Yeah, yeah. Good. yeah pretty I, good. I, just, I don't know why I thought of that just now, but I did. Uh-huh. Uh, well, Jamie, a lot of the things that you're saying now seem to relate more to women than to men. Women's yes. bodies are held to much higher standards and women's sexual doings are <laughs> held to much more stringent standards. Why would you say that's so? Yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no question that that's the case. There are probably a number of factors that play a role. We can look at it from an evolutionary perspective. From an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that women's sexuality would be more highly regulated because females have a greater investment in sex, that one act of sex could potentially commit Tire women for a long for, time. For, 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 a long time. You know, at least nine months, whereas for a man... Or 18 years. Or 18 or years. years. Or 24 years. Well, what they, <laughs> the evolutionary psychologists talk more about the obligatory investment. So the obligatory investment for a woman is, um, if she becomes pregnant, is a minimum of nine months, whereas for a man, it's 10, 15 minutes, 15 right? Seconds. right? <laughs> or 15 seconds. So that could, that could provide some explanation for why women's sexuality is so high, highly regulated. So evolutionary theorists talk about how men are evolved to more highly value women's appearance because of connections to health and um, reproductive status. And, and of course, we know a lot of the standards for women's body are anything but healthy. We can also look at it from a feminist perspective, which I don't think you can ignore, that there are power inequities between men and women, that you know, men set the rules, they control the advertising and the media for the most part, and they probably designed that commercial that you're talking about. And so this probably also plays a role in why the, the focus is so much on women. But in the research that I've been doing, what we argue is that existential factors also play a role. And when we think about, you know, the aspects of women that are devalued, there are all those aspects that tie her to her physical nature. I mean, women are devalued for being less rational than men, more emotional, physically weaker, at the mercy of their bodies, physical changes during pregnancy and, and menstruation. Yeah, like hysteria is considered right. to be a, a female trait. You know, men men don't become well, hysterical. Right, actually, what the, originally the original definition of hysteria was a wandering womb, that that was the cause of hysteria. <laughs> okay. So that, that it's a really good example. 
we actually did, I did an experiment with my colleague, Tommy Ann Roberts at Colorado College, where we had a woman, a confederate, so it's somebody that the, the participant in our study thought was another participant, but really this was staged. During halfway through the experiment, this woman went into her, her backpack and accidentally dropped something out, and either it was a hair clip or it was a tampon. And then later in the experiment, there was a reason why our participant had to evaluate this person that they thought they were going to participate in some other task on. And what we found is that when she had dropped the tampon, that they, that they found her less competent, that they liked her less. And then we also measured how far they positioned their chair from her. And we found that when she dropped the tampon, that people put their chair further away from her after the tampon compared to the hair clip condition. So this is the same woman dropping two different things? No, no, no. It was, it was, those were two conditions. So the, either she dropped the tampon <laughs> or she dropped the hair clip. Okay. Control group, control right. group. Right. Versus okay. the, the study group. I'm right. Just, so but if it's not the same woman, they might have just. No, no, no. Right. It was, the, it was the same woman. So it's the same it, woman. This, right. It was only one confederate. She looked the same. It was the same woman. She did everything the same except either it was a tampon or the hair clip. So that was and the only some thing that part, could be That different. was the only thing that varied. And some participants saw her drop a tampon. And some saw her drop a hair clip. That gotcha. was the only thing that varied. Gotcha. And we found that their reactions were, were quite skewed. negative. Quite, quite negative. If once they see the tampon are reminded of right. this process. Right. Yeah, which three billion people have a period once a month. I mean, it's just incredible that I mean, we have all these clever words for right. you know the time of the month. Right. I'm having my friend. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, it's just, uh, Aunt Flo. Aunt Flo. And, 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 all, and all these sanitary products. Right. Yeah. Like What's up with that? Dirty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sanitary. Yeah. So on the one hand, we have this culture where women are viewed negatively you know, on some level, but at the same time, we put women on pedestals as goddesses in Shakespearean sonnets and songs. and What's that about? Well, yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. It's the attitudes toward women or prejudice toward women are different than other types of prejudice because men need women. And so what some psychologists have noted, Glick and Fisk are a team of researchers studying this, what they call ambivalent sexism. And what they notice is that attitudes toward women are not wholly negative, that these hostile sexist attitudes are blended with benevolent sexism. And so women are devalued, but they're also put on this pedestal. And what we point out is that when they're put on this pedestal, that's exactly that, that your angel commercial, that this pedestal, when they're devalued, they're like animals. All their, you know, everything about them, their, their physical weaknesses. But when they're put on a pedestal, they become pure. They become totally devoid of any kind of natural qualities. Um, and actually, in, in the same tampon study, we found we also, after we gave them a questionnaire and asked them to evaluate women in general, so no longer the woman in the study, but we asked them, how important is it for women to be beautiful? And what we found is that when the woman dropped the tampon, so when participants were exposed to women dropping the tampon, that after that, it became more important for women to be beautiful. So women in general. Wow. We're objectified as a defense against this reminder. So is that such a bad thing then? I mean, that women's bodies are sometimes devalued, but then sometimes worshipped? Well, I mean, both of them are demeaning if you think about it. So when they're devalued, they're put down to the level of animals. 
but when they're worshipped, they become no longer human. They become objects, objects, possessions, objects to be controlled, and that this is also demeaning. Those two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and actually, what Glick and Fisk find in their research on ambivalent sexism is that hostile sexism tends to correlate with benevolent sexism. So it's not like some people are hostile sexist and some people are benevolent sexist. They tend to go hand in hand. Benevolent sexism is this. This putting women, you saying that women are so pure and they need to be taken care of, and they're still they're, they're up they're up there, but but at the same time they're 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 very weak and. Gotcha. And, and men have to hold the doors open for them because they can't possibly open, right, open right, the door right, yeah, yeah. by themselves, and and they have to be yeah they have to be pampered. Mm-hmm. So this is a new explanation for misogyny that we're talking about here, and how does it differ from the traditional? Feminist explanation well, for misogyny. You know, when we talk about the benevolent sexism aspect, a more traditional feminist explanation is that this benevolent sexism is a means for pacifying women. So, a means for making them think that men aren't really sexist, and so this will make them not fight back, and they'll they'll be happy with it. Whereas our perspective is a little bit different, in that we're saying that it's not just to pacify women, but really. Men are pacifying themselves because men are also threatened by these types of attributions about women. Because men don't merely need women, but they desire women. They're attracted to women, and so they're threatened on some level by thinking of a woman as an animal. So they do it for themselves to strip them of their creatureliness. Because of our attraction. Because of the attraction. So that men won't think of themselves as animals, as, animals as well. As animals are being attracted. I mean. Or the targets of being your attraction to be attracted, attracted to an, to an animal. animal. So sex is, as we talked about in the other show, sex provides some sort of existential threat. It reminds us of our animality, but being attracted to something so pure, something angel-like. Well, that's you know that's okay. So being reminded of your animality knocks down your defenses against the terror of death. Right. It reminds you of your existential right. situation. And so, therefore, men are misogynistic in order to defend against the terror of death. Right. So, it's, I mean, it's still a feminist explanation, and that men are doing it for their own benefit. But the root is not so much power. We would argue. I mean, if, you know, we're not saying that doesn't play a role, but it's existential concerns. So, the, uh-huh. the root of the need to put women down and also to lift them to a higher level are existential. So then, but why, why women's bodies? I mean, men are creatures too. We have bodies. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you have very creaturely bodies. Too, yeah, right? yeah. Creaturely, very, very creaturly. Creaturely. In fact, I mean, yeah, men are more grisly. Yeah, they're more beastly, actually. Right. So again, there's there's probably a lot of explanations for this, and I don't think we can dismiss the more traditional feminist explanation, which relies on the fact that men. Are in power, and so they get to decide. What's I've never bad been comfortable with that explanation, the, the the traditional feminist explanation. I mean, I understand, you know, and and yeah. certainly there is truth to it. We're not throwing that out here. Yeah, we're not we're throwing just, it out. We're just adding right. another right. dimension right. to it. One thing that it's, uh, we had speculated could possibly play a role is women's role in reproduction. So, could there be something more inherently threatening about women's bodies? I don't. I don't really know the answer to this, but that's one potential. I mean, if you think about interesting menstruation. As the aspect that is so often used to put women down, that women can't be, you know, hold certain pos- positions or I mean, all sorts of menstrual taboos. 
But then also the idea of men's lust. Men's sexual response is, is more lustful than women. Men are more driven by lust. And so if we think of lust as providing a threat, reminding of our animality, reminding us that we're not, we're not in control, that this also could play a role. And we've actually conducted a number of experiments. Um, Mark Landau, a graduate student with Jeff Greenberg, University of Arizona, spearheaded some of this work where we showed that for men, being reminded of their lust makes them respond with more negative attitudes toward women. Oh, my. Well, Jamie, we in the Western world are seem to be obsessed with breasts. Why is it breasts? Why not shoulders or backs or knees? or so We have lots of parts. Right. Well, actually, I just got back tri- from a trip to India, and there they are somewhat obsessed. Shoulders are also very erotic, and they're kept hidden. But for the, it does seem that there is this general tendency to objectify breasts and be obsessed with breasts. And what we would argue is that... They still like breasts in India, don't they? They still like breasts in India. Okay. <laughs> and they still keep them hidden there. But that, if you think about what a breast is, it's a mammary gland, right? And so we don't want to think about breasts as their true function of, of you know, lactation. Finger. Right. And most, you know, if you ask most men, most, most men aren't turned on by lactating breasts. So objectification is a means of stripping the breasts from their true function and, again, making them into this cultural object, an object of desire. The thing about the nipples are the part that's usually most erotic. So, again, it's, it's like the most threatening, but also the most... <laughs> what, what men often lust after most, there's always the X's on them. They're, that's right. And that's the part Hasties. that lactates, right? And that's the part that the yeah, child so we, we think that that probably plays a role in why the breasts are so taboo or and, at the same time, so desired and they sure are everywhere because now. it's not a sex organ i mean and men have no. nipples and you yeah. know and we can show them we can show them right it's bizarre it's absolutely when you think about it, it's absolutely bizarre isn't it mm-hmm. uh, and it's not but it's but yet there are indigenous people yeah you know, that in africa and yeah in other parts of the world that national geographic national geographic but yet we're talking about you're talking about shoulders in India. When when we had this conversation earlier, the in Japan is the the back of a woman's neck is mm-hmm. considered an an erotic or erogenous right. part of the body. Yeah, I mean there definitely will be cultural variability, but we do seem to see some common trends. And the breasts, for a lot of cultures, are something that that is really considered attractive and also taboo. Um, menstruation is probably an example that goes across, I think, just about every culture. Taboo, taboo is associated with that. Well, in some cultures, women get put in a in a, a, in a, a hut, hut. Yeah, yeah, they get sure. separated for the entire time of the, of the, the flow. Right in our culture, we just don't talk about it. And we keep it really, really sanitary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sanitary. That's true. Yeah. That word again. Right. Do women do this? Do women objectify women? Sure. You know, we all live in the same society. And when you talk about this research, it's often hard to separate out the psychological underpinnings and the fact that the societal pressures. Actually, in the tampon study, we didn't find a gender difference. Both men and women were participants in the study, and they both responded the same way. Wow. So women do objectify women. Does a woman objectify herself? Definitely objectifies our women objectify themselves, too. And, you know, now separating it from these psychological causes and seeing that now our society has become obsessed and many you know societies although the standards differ somewhat obsessed with women's bodies and how women should look and so how can you not that so women often 
put very much energy and thought and concern into how their body looks. It seems like women spend more time getting made up in the latest fashions, are more concerned about how they look to other women than how they look to men. Yeah. I've heard that said. Do you think that's true? Um, dress for women. I think. I think. I think to to some extent, maybe because women appreciate. I mean, that if you think about these these psychological causes, uh, causes make women care so much about how they look and whether they're conforming to certain standards. But then it's the other women that pay attention to these standards, and they can appreciate it more. You know, the, the men, they they like miss the. The subtle thing. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, the women that. can appreciate it more. The men, you know, like you know, it's like the effort's kind of wasted on men sometimes. So women will appreciate the fashions and stuff more than the more than men will. You sound like somebody I know. <laughs> not, not the clear eye for the straight guy. Right. Men. Right. The, the metrosexuals. They don't, metrosexuals. Yeah. They don't miss anything. Mm-hmm. I thought one of the one of the examples you gave in one of your papers was the difference between. Nude and naked, what I thought was was telling. You want to comment on that a little bit? The difference between nude and naked. Yeah, what we were talking about there is this idea that women's bodies are traditionally like presented as, as nudes. Like if you think about a nude, that's the way naked bodies are presented in art. So a nude body is this objectified body. It's a body to be gazed at by others, whereas the naked body is kind of stripped of their of their defenses, and we don't. You know, we don't, we don't celebrate that so much. What we celebrate is the nude woman, the, the woman to be gazed at, the woman to be admired, the woman to step out of herself and look at herself and think about how she's appearing to the world rather than just kind of being in herself. It's true. Naked has more yeah. than one meaning, really. I mean, it's with having no clothes, but it can also mean like psychologically having, exposed. Yeah, stripped, right? stripped so, of, 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 defenses. of the defenses. And nude is definitely not animalistic no it's only a human concept yeah yeah Yeah. strange concept yeah so what are the consequences then of female objectification and (laughs) self-objectification what's the downside to all this well i mean there's there's (laughs) where where should i start uh there are a lot of consequences one i mean just the idea of objectifying women what that does is it makes women a commodity I mean, that makes women a possession. They become objects. Becoming an object means that you're less human. You know, this may play, play a role in aggression toward women, the ability to be able to, to aggress against women. We actually, in some of those studies that Mark Lando's been doing, he actually found this, that with lust, that men became more tolerant toward a male who aggressed against a woman. There are also, of course, consequences to women who can't conform or don't want to or reject the societal standards. So if they don't look how society expects them to look, then they're targets of discrimination. Which is why weight is such a big issue. Yeah, weight, weight is weight is huge, and that so that it's also like the self objectification. So there are major consequences associated with self objectification, with becoming preoccupied with how your body looks. Consequences to a woman's own self esteem. That all all the things that we do. Women starving themselves, plastic surgery, Botox, ripping out pubic hairs with hot wax, all these things that are very, very painful. A lot of health consequences associated with... It is kind of amazing. I mean, you you know, shaving your underarms, shaving your legs, or ripping it out with hot wax. Right, and you have electrolysis, you have that laser hair removal, (laughs) all all these things. 
I mean, so what a technology the, 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 brought to bear. Right. The, the pain, the health consequences, a lot of these things. I mean, that actually we've done a handful of studies and we show that women are often willing to forego their own health in an attempt to look a certain way, especially when they've been reminded of their own mortality. High and also economic. Shoes. Yeah. And corsets. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. Course, yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> We Which talked. are coming back in style, actually. Oh, good. About time. Let's <laughs> up with that. And Jamie Arndt talked about, with health, we talked about suntanning. Yep. Yeah. We, and we that's gotta... terrible for you. Sure. And but, we but know that. that. But if it looks but good. But you look better. Right. And I feel for the, you know, having a daughter, having seen what she and her friends go through as teenagers. Yeah. I mean, teenage girls have a tough time. Oh, it's horrible. Um, it's horrible. You, know, you either conform or... You, you're just an outsider. You're an outsider, yeah. The, the subtleties are, are, are much more difficult for a teenager. Yeah, and there, there are other consequences, too. Tony Ann Roberts and um, Barb Fredrickson, who are doing work on objectification theories, show that just the like exerting that energy towards self-objectifying yourself, what, what women do more often than men, and of course, you know, men do it too, and some women do it more or less, but they focus on themselves from an external perspective. So they're constantly stepping outside of themselves and thinking, you know, looking back, how am I looking? How am I performing? And what this does is it really prevents them from thoroughly engaging themselves in a task, from thoroughly being able to enjoy what you're doing. If you're constantly stepping out and saying, how am I doing? It, it, how do it I interferes. Look right, now? right. It interferes. Yeah, how do I look as I'm doing it? It interferes in their, their ability to concentrate. I would think even to experience life fully. Life. I mean, and, and that's actually one definition of happiness is, is this concept of flow, that just thoroughly engaging yourself in a task that has an optimal level of, of challenge, that this is, this is one definition of what really makes people happy. And so self-objectification interferes with this. So how do we, uh, how do we improve prove? the situation for yeah. women? Well, I mean, it, that's, the $64 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's Obviously, you know, one thing that would help is to change the whole social structure. I mean, let's change all the emphasis that's placed on women's appearance and make the standards less stringent. Um, be more accepting of... Be more accepting for women's yeah. natural bodies, you know, the expectations for weight and stuff, making them more reasonable. That would be a good step. That, w- that would be really helpful. But also, on women's part, perhaps understanding how arbitrary a lot of these standards are, understanding that they're socially constructed and they're imposed on us. And so for a reason, yeah, yeah. for, for, for existential reasons. Right. And so if we understand that they're, they're, they're really just this defense, maybe that could help reject them or reject particular ones that reject ones that are most threatening and kind of form your own sense of, of what it is to be a valuable person. And, you know, maybe this in turn, if, if women value, I don't know, whatever it is, being, being a good friend, overlooking a certain way, that these kind of things, maybe that can kind of take us full circle and help affect the cultural standards. That's a nice you know, thought. Nice. nice thought. Jamie, thank you. Uh, our guest has been Dr. Jamie Goldenberg. Jamie, thank you for another terrific conversation. This was really great. Yeah. Thank My you. Pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Jamie Goldenberg discussing misogyny, women, and their role in society. So, Ken, what's your takeaway? Well, Steve, I really like her Becker 101 and Terror Management Theory 101. You know, one of the great things we've gotten out of doing this podcast is we get to talk to all these different scholars about these 
ideas that you and I both know pretty well, and we get to hear all these different angles on it. And I think hers right there was one of the best. Yeah. She really, uh, yeah. really made it real. I agree. So terror management theory provides an empirical framework for testing Ernest Becker's theories. She brought up the problem with human animality and culture as a symbolic defense against death anxiety, all worth repeating now and then. Yep, and I liked her observation that we humans don't like to think of our bodies as being animal-like. Instead, we make our body a cultural object. Great phrase, cultural object. Yeah, it sure is. It's startling when I heard it. She described hostile sexism and emphasized that women are devalued in our society for existential reasons. Which is not obvious to most of us. That's a, that's a heavy concept to get your head yes, around. Yes, it is. It's not. It's but not. It, it makes sense once you hear it. And uh, yep. so men need women, and so they have an amb- ambivalent sexism. It's subconscious. They are subconsciously sexist. Subconsciously is an important idea that we'll be bringing up several times here, but it's something most people don't think about or that it's possible. It might be worth noting that neuroscience has shown that most of our decisions, actions, emotions, and behavior depend on the 95% of our brain activity that lies beyond conscious awareness, meaning that 95 or as much as 99% of our life comes from the programming in our subconscious mind. Something to keep in mind. Ah, bad pun. (laughs) Sorry. So we talked about putting women on a pedestal. Yeah, she had a great take on that. She called it benevolent sexism as opposed to hosp- as opposed to hostile sexism. Benevolent sexism also devalues women by making them devoid of their natural qualities, and they become objects to be controlled as a defense against death anxiety. Yeah, and I like the the whole Becker terror management theory interpretation of misogyny. Men are also threatened by the notion of human animality. And, at the same time, they desire women. So they're threatened, on some level, to think of themselves as desirous of an animal, which then reminds them of their creatureliness, and therefore, their mortality. Yeah, it's a complex chain of ideas, and it relies on understanding, as I said before, that these are subconscious processes. Like sex being an existential threat. We talked about that when we had our first episode with Jamie. Yep. We desire sex, but have subconscious misgivings because it reminds us that we're animals and therefore mortal. Yeah. Men are misogynists in order to defend themselves against their own terror of death. Right. And raising women to a higher level is the flip side of that same coin. Right. We talked about our culture's obsession with breasts. They are mammary glands, baby feeders, but we strip them of their true function and we make them a central object of desire. It's getting crazy these days. You can't go anywhere on the internet without seeing cleavage. Breasts are attractive and taboo. Yeah, but I've seen them already, you know? They're everywhere. I I don't need to see... A lot of people apparently need to see see them a lot. Good for them, honestly. I'm guessing they make people buy stuff. Well... Make them pay attention long enough to get the the commercial message. Anyway, she said it's hard to separate out psychological versus societal pressures 
in their research. The two are linked. Yeah, and she said objectification of women may play a role in aggression against women. Mm. Violence against women is still a major concern, and this could explain some of it. Without getting political, because uh, we've done enough political. Especially but, lately. Yeah, but misogyny is really prevalent. Yeah. In, let's, let's leave it at that. Yeah. So it's the objective objectification of women, but then there's also the self-objectification of women. Jamie talked about the lengths some women go to in their preoccupation with how they look. And the pain involved in some of it. Right. She mentioned the psychological concept of flow. Flo- you mean as when an Aunt Flo is in town? No. <laughs> no. Not menstruation. She's talking about the theory explored in the book Flow. The Psychology of Optimal Experience by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Honestly, at the time of the interview, that went right over my head. I hadn't read the book at that point. Now I have a much better appreciation of what she was saying. I can't believe you know how to say his name correctly. Well, no. Merlin Maury's husband, Miklos, who is Hungarian-American like Mihaly, taught me how to say it. Oh, so. good. So Jamie was pointing out that women in our society, more so than men, exert more energy in self-objectification. And by focusing on themselves from an external perspective, by constantly stepping outside of themselves and asking, how am I doing? How am I looking? How am I performing? It prevents them from thoroughly engaging in a task from enjoying what they're doing to the fullest extent. It interferes with their ability to concentrate and interferes with their ability to gauge in what psychologists call flow. Jamie defines flow as thoroughly engaging yourself in a task that has an optimal level of challenge. In other words, it involves a task that is difficult enough to engage your complete focus but not impossible to successfully complete. She notes that it is one way to be happy. Self-objectification interferes with flow. Steve, do you experience flow? Absolutely. Carpentry and writing are two ways for me to achieve that state. Some call it being in the zone, you know, like the pitcher standing on the mound and 50,000 people are screaming and he doesn't even hear what they're yelling. He's just... yep focused on getting the ball over the plate. They call that being in the zone. That's flow. You're blocking out the world and focusing on the task at hand. I can't imagine successfully doing carpentry or writing while wondering, how do I look right now? In fact, if I'm doing manual labor or writing at my desk, I look my absolute worst. But you're comfy. (laughs) Yes. How about you? Uh, I'm comfy. No. no. Do you experience flow? flow? Yes. Yes. Uh, when I'm playing the guitar, especially creating on the guitar, coming up with a new idea that is new for me, mm-hmm. I have completely lose track of my sense of time and my sense of self. Yeah, that's an important aspect of flow. You lose track of your sense of time. Time can just like go right by when you're, when you're in flow. Yep. If we get to interview Jamie again, I'd like to explore her ideas on flow. I maintained in my book, American Stew, shameless plug, that flow (laughs) is a brief antidote 
to death anxiety. I'd love to know if there have been any studies on that. Yeah, and Jamie is a painter and a novelist, so I'm sure she has got a lot of firsthand experience with flow. Yeah, that's a good point. Jamie talked about how our society needs to change the emphasis on women's appearance and make those standards less stringent. Mm -hmm. We need to be more accepting of women's natural bodies, particularly that expectations of weight should be more reasonable. She said that women do and need to understand how arbitrary these standards are, that they're socially controlled and imposed upon us for existential reasons. That's not an easy one to keep in mind while you're living your life in this society that we find ourselves in, but it would be a way for us to make things better, particularly for women, particularly for young women. Yeah. In other words, we can do better as a society in this regard. A lot of important ideas here, Steve. Oh, yeah, man. Our stock in trade. So, folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thehubimportantideas. We are 100% listener supported. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. Stay well.